So, uh, today is the last one in our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter uh, to the church in Thessaloniki, or depending how you say it, Thessalonica. Um, and, uh, and so, today, we, we kind of get to this section. We're in, we, we, we are going to look at the second letter as well in coming weeks as well, uh, but this is the, fir- the last one in the first letter. And uh, we're picking things up from chapter 5, verse 12, and you might remember that a couple of weeks ago, I kind of took a little chunk from verse 19 to 22, and we focused on that for a whole Sunday. Um, but we're going to look at these last verses. And this is the equivalent of, if you've ever been a part of like, or heard a, you know, an interview where they ask in-depth questions, um, and they, you know, somebody answers the question, this is like the quick-fire round of, of a question and answer session. So there are lots of different, uh, Paul, when he's writing this letter, just focuses on lots of different things. So we thought we would mirror that in the format of today's talk, in that we're going to do like a quick-fire round. And so we have got three different people um, who are each going to spend a few minutes just looking at um, three of these different, these last sections in these last verses, because there are different themes that come out, and we thought it'd be good to hear some different voices on these things. So Derek is going to come up first, then followed by Faith, and then uh, after that, Ben will wrap things up. So Derek, do you want to come up? Uh, let's welcome him as he comes. Um, yeah, how to keep it down to about seven and a half minutes? Well, I thought, if I take my notes, I could uh, give them to my wife and say, just cross out anything not relevant or interesting. So, thank you for listening. (laughs) Actually, we do have the Bible verses, which I hope will come up, and they're always interesting and relevant. I'd like to read those verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. So there's two main things I'd like to draw out of that. There's lots of stuff in there. But the first point is to ask the question, isn't Paul stating the obvious here? He says, respect, live at peace with one another, encourage, help, be patient, be kind. Well, we know that, don't we? Why do we need to be told things that we know already? I live in Woodsop. If I come to Acom by car, normally, of course, I'd walk or cycle to establish my green credentials. But if I have to come by car, do I need somebody to tell me, don't drive a drive at 70 miles an hour on Gale Lane? It's good advice, but is it necessary? I don't need someone to tell me, don't fight with other people in town. I never do. So it's good advice, but is it necessary? Do I need somebody to say, don't forget the the shopping? That's not a very good example, actually, is it? Uh, uh, But there are plenty of others, plenty of other examples of things that are obvious. So why does he state the obvious? Two weeks ago, Caleb talked about a forgotten biblical truth and a new dynamism that's needed to apply it. Even if we know it, we need to be reminded. And that's the point, to examine ourselves and to apply the truths. You reread the Bible... And we say, yes, I get it, I understand. Yeah, I've got it, but what am I doing with it? And that's really the application for us. We may know all of these things, but are we doing it? What are we doing about it? At the same time, and the place and the time Paul was writing, this was 
countercultural, and that's a word we use a lot as we read these epistles, any epistles or the Bible at all. It's countercultural. It was not obvious to most people in society. That's already been mentioned earlier in Thessalonians. Christianity is setting new standards, higher standards, leading the way. It's a reminder to us that we're not to conform to the standards of the world. We have a higher standard out of step with society. So we can choose whether we want to be in step with God or in step with society. We do need to state the obvious because it's not obvious to everybody and it's not obvious to many of us all the time. The second point is the role of leadership. Paul says, Respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And again, we say, why does Paul tell us that? Why does he feel the need to write it? Possibly, some church members wouldn't accept the leadership of the elders of the church. That they have a role to play, just as everyone in the church has a role to play. And possibly, too, some leaders were guilty of heavy-handed behaviour. That's been true throughout the history of the church. Some pastors become dictators and are corrupted by power. We've seen this in the past and we can still see it, not here, we can still see it today in certain places. Um, and leadership is one of the roles within a church. Any group that wants to function needs to have leadership. And uh, Paul talks about that by saying they are people, leaders, who work hard among you. He uses the Greek word kopiao. I have to throw in a Greek word because there's two others coming and they might do that. So I have to compete. <laughs> um, it's normally used for manual occupations like farm labourers or leather workers, like Paul. has the idea of toil, strive, struggle, and conjures up pictures of rippling muscles and sweat. I was going to get some pictures of the, our church leaders, but I thought, no, I won't uh, do that to grow weary in doing so. And Paul says in Colossians, I labour, struggling with all Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in me. Do our leaders look weary, worn out, completely done in? Good, well, no, that's over the top. But yes, we all together are working hard. That is the point. The church is a group of people working hard together. It's what we require of ourselves that matters. John Stott, the great... Uh, Christian teacher said, the chief characteristics of a Christian leader are humility, not authority, gentleness, not power. And we have the great role model, Jesus. He was a model of humility, the model of gentleness in leadership. Leaders are to guide but not manipulate. Jesus never manipulated. The history of the church, as I've said, that has happened. Do you feel guided within the church by people in different areas of leadership? That's good. Do you feel manipulated? That's not good. We should challenge that, not run away from it. The leaders are there to serve. Remember a while ago, there was a leader who asked his followers to buy him a jet to go about his business. Not, a new, not for the first time, to replace the one which he already had. Um... If you think that's part of leadership, well, yes, support that. But most of us wouldn't. It wouldn't work here. If one of the leaders says, I need a jet, then I don't think we'd really support that, would we? 
I see one or two of our leaders crossing it off a list here. <laughs> Put down secondhand skateboard, still pushing it. <laughs> so we're to exploit, not to demand, to serve and to guide and to enable. In a fully functioning church, we're all playing our part. So it's not telling the leaders what they should do, it's telling us what we should do in supporting leaders and leaders in supporting. We support one another, we respect the role of leadership, and that leaves us with the one line to leave us with, really, live in peace with each other. Within a church, we should be living in peace with each other, supporting each other, and uh, helping one another. We're reminding ourselves here, then, of Christian characteristics and applying them. We're working together as a whole with the leadership as part of an integral unit. We need, of course, the Holy Spirit, but that's for the next person. Morning, everybody. Yes, I've got the next few verses, which is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. And if we can have the first slide, that, yes, it's worked. Lovely. So, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Three impossible commands. Well, are they? This is the question. We're going to look at them in a bit more detail. So let's go to the first one. Rejoice always. What does it mean? Should we always have a happy smile? Should we have an upbeat attitude all the time? And if we don't, are we a bit feeble? If we're sad and depressed and grieving, does that mean we're in sin? No, of course not. It absolutely does not. Uh, Jesus and Paul, had both of them had some hard times when they were sad and struggling with life. For example, in John chapter 11, we read Jesus wept. And in Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus prayed with crying and, and loud, loud crying and tears. And Paul, who wrote this in Corinthians, describes himself as sorrowful, but always rejoicing. So what's it all about, this rejoicing? What does it mean? I think it's also quite interesting to remember that when he wrote this, it was to a group of new believers that were being persecuted. So there weren't a bunch of happy campers that he was saying rejoice. Um, so... There's something in that whole thing about choice, and it's a deliberate decision to focus on Jesus and all that he's done for us. And actually, if we look at the Psalms, a lot of them, they start with people that are depressed, in despair, um, miserable, and by the end of the Psalm, they've come to a place of hope and faith and, uh, and even joy. And there's lots of Psalms that do that. Psalm 5 is one of them, if you want to look it up later. So, how can we rejoice always? I think the last part of the verses I look at, where it says, in Christ Jesus, there's something about that that's key, being in Christ Jesus. And in Galatians 5.22, it says, walk in the spirit, not the flesh. And there's something about, as we yield all our life, every bit of our lives, to him, we will know a joy that rises up beyond the circumstances that we were in. And I actually have experienced that in times, and there's plenty of other people here that will have also experienced it. But they, I think the other thing we have to do is we have to make a choice to focus on the riches that God has for us that don't change. And in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, we get quite a few of them. I'm not looking these up because I've only got seven minutes, so you just have to look them up later. Um, but we read how he chose us. He died for us. He's adopted us into his family. 
He saves us. He forgives us. He gives us eternal life and the hope in heaven. All these things never, ever change. Whatever's going on around us, those things always remain true. And we can worship him and rejoice in those things. So, that moves us on to the next point, praying continually. If we can have the next slide. Um, Yes, you may wonder about these pictures, but I'll explain them in a minute. Um, Are we supposed to be praying every waking moment? Is that realistic? Is it possible? Well, I don't think it is, actually. Um, So, what does it actually mean? Apparently, Google is a wonderful thing, isn't it? When you look up Google and, and look up the words without ceasing, apparently the word that was used... I haven't got the Greek word, Um, uh, means something like, can be used in a hacking cough. A person with a bad cough um, doesn't do it continuously, do they? They kind of repeatedly um, cough. Um, It can also, the same word can also be used of repeated attacks on a city. So I think this word is more about praying frequently and persistently And there's other passages in the Bible that would also indicate that, really, isn't there? Like in Luke um, 11, there's a story of a friend who came to his friend at midnight wanting some bread, and he persisted and persisted until the guy got up and gave him the bread. And also there's another story in Luke, in 18, of a widow who kept bothering the unjust judge until she got justice. And these were stories about encouraging us to pray persistently and frequently and not give up. Um, so how can, we, how can we pray frequently and persistently? I think we, the first thing, you have to acknowledge that we have a need to depend on the Lord in every situation. So you're praying about everything that you do, whether it's fun, whether it's hard, whether it's good. And whatever it is, you're praying about it. And you're sending up short prayers. I do a lot of short prayers. I'm not so good on the long ones. But the long ones are good, and we need to do those as well. But sending up short prayers all the time about everything in the course of the day um, because of our dependence on, on Jesus for help. And also, of course, spending time in his word, which is um, essential, really. If we want to know Jesus, then we need to know his word, and it will help us as we communicate with him and pray with him. So, the last one, giving thanks in everything. Um, the last slide, thank you. Um, oh, yes, there is a bit of a picture there. Um, I just thought, actually, we're a nation, aren't we? They say we're a nation of grumblers. And this slide just sort of demonstrates it, really. Um, but here he's saying we need to give thanks in every, every circumstances. Everything? Well, no. We don't have to be grateful or happy with stuff that's going on that's really bad, do we? Or resign to accept matters that are wrong. We also don't have to feel thankful to be thankful. It's a bit like forgiveness. You don't have to feel forgiveness to be forgiving. And, and this is a bit the same, really. We don't have to feel thankful to be thankful. It's more about choosing to trust God and express thanks for the things that are good and recognise that even in bad and difficult stuff. God is with us, helping us. There's many stories in the Bible of how God uses difficult things for good. And actually, do you remember the story of Joseph? Um, I mean, he was, uh, you know, it's a great story, isn't it? He was betrayed by his brothers. He was a slave. He was in prison for years and years and years until he became the leader of the nation and sorted out a whole load of stuff and saved another nation in the midst of a crisis where there was no food. 
And God was using, and, and Joseph could see that all the difficult things he'd walked through, um, God could use for that time. And he does use it for things that we do. I know from experience, having been through difficult times, that he can bring good out of it if we let him. Um, so we need to find a way of giving thanks in everything. And I think trusting God is the key, really. If, if we're grumbling, we're not trusting, are we, really? And if we're not trusting, we can't really be thankful. So it's about trying to trust God and understand something more of his sovereignty and his goodness to us. And, of course, develop a ha- habit of thankfulness. It's an in thing at the moment. There's a lot of people saying we need to practice being thankful. Well, God said it first. And he, and he knew it would be good for us to, to look out and be thankful in, in the things that we have in our lives. So, in conclusion, the three impossible statements are possible, to re- he, and God's will for us is to rejoice always, to pray continually or frequently and persistently, and to give thanks in all things. It's, it's not impossible, and it can be done as we acknowledge and depend on Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. But it is a bit of a lifelong process, and uh, it's something to work on. So I'm going to stop there and hand on to Ben. I feel like I should limp after my obstacle course this morning. It's a little treat to get my... Right, so we're at the end now. We're at the end of 1 Thessalonians. And as we come into end, uh, the, the, the pace just changes a little bit here. The first part of Thessalonians is very much about Paul uh, thanking the Thessalonians for the work they did. And then the second half, we see all these exhortations where Paul is urging followers in Christ in their walk. And then he comes to the end. And he offers us this really hopeful prayer. And this prayer is about God permeating their lives with holiness. So this last little section here, we're really thinking about God changing us. God making us more holy like him. In verse 23, Paul writes this. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. It's a lovely way for him to start to gather at the end of this letter. And I I rather think here Paul is praying a really simple prayer over the church and he's praying it over us now. It still is relevant for us here today. I think he's saying three things. I think he's saying first, God, sanctify us. God, sanctify every bit of us. And God, sanctify us all the time. And this this word sanctification, it may feel a bit old, it may feel a bit archaic, but I rather like to look at it as, it is God changing us. And I, I also like that, the phrasing of, we're set apart something special. Derek's already touched on that this morning. When Paul was writing, the teachings of Jesus were really countercultural. Well, they're still quite countercultural now, aren't they? can really offend at times. We are set apart when we're Christians for a special purpose, 
a special use. You may say, God started the work of making us like Christ, and he is continuing it. I love the word himself in here as well. We have to acknowledge that it's God himself, and it implies himself and no other. I think that's a really valuable lesson for us as well with our ministry, our desire to see spiritual growth as we go forwards together. We shouldn't lessen our hard work or our discipline, but this truth should cause us to appeal to God and only God to change us. So it's God sanctifying us, and it's God sanctifying every part of us. We can't choose which bit of our lives we want him to sort out. Paul writes, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. And we should note again, it's God doing the keeping, not us. One day we'll stand before our King Jesus, won't we, when he comes back. And Paul's prayer is that every part of us will be kept blameless at his coming. And that third part of his prayer is the fact that he doesn't stop. He uses the wording, the one who calls you. And we know he doesn't just call us and then say, well, that's done, I've called you now, sorted. And just stop there, does it? No. He calls and he justifies by grace. And he sanctifies by grace as well. So he keeps, keeps changing us, does it by grace. He's continually working on us, every part of us. So Paul offers us that prayer at the end of this letter. And then he concludes with three uh, final remarks. And again, there's a bit of a gear change here. He writes at the end, Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So as Paul offers this petition for God to, to make us holy, he also recognises that he and his team are not exempt from that. They as leaders still need that sanctifying power of God. And he asks the church to pray for them. And again, as we've touched on this morning, we should be praying for our leaders. They need this as well. Of course they do. They're still human. And then there's this, this uh, the command to greet each other with a holy kiss. And for me, we've touched on this as we've gone through this series as a church. This just shows Paul's fondness for this, uh, this group of people. The, the word holy kiss for me has a, a close parallel with kissing somebody in your family and showing a token of a close relationship. And then there's a real gear change here. The language changes and it's forceful. Paul writes... I charge you. You can't be any doubt there of what he's saying. He's being really clear. I charge you to have this letter read to all the brothers. This would have been the responsibility of the church leaders to do. And with so many people being illiterate, this was ensuring that everyone in the body heard these important truths. We're going to shortly move into a time of worship and um, we're going to spend some time reflecting what we've heard this morning. Paul brings this epistle to a close with a note of grace. He begins the letter with that note and he ends it with the same note. With that symmetry, he declares it's the grace of Jesus that makes our sanctification possible from beginning 
to end. I'm just going to ask, in fact, this would be a good time if the band wants to start, thank you, making your way back up. We've heard lots this morning, haven't we? And we've learned lots throughout this series. But Paul is clear in this letter. Jesus is coming again. I got a yes from the room, that's great. <laughs> During this life, God is working on us. He's called us. He's working on us. He's changing us. Thank you, God, that you are changing me. Thank you, Lord. He's changing all of us. He gives us many promises. And we can thank God this morning as we come and worship him. And we see here, don't we, at the end of this letter, that as we trust in God, he will make us more like him. He will make us more holy. And so we can worship our God this morning. It's our God, he himself, that sanctifies us. He does sanctifies every bit of us, and he does it all the time. So let's live our whole lives for the Lord, not in our own strength, but in his.